Welcome back to the Put the Wet Stuff on the Red Stuff podcast. I'm your host, Lou Vaselli, and I'm joined here in the Darley Innovation Lab by my good friend, Mike Mitchell. Uh, welcome, Mike. Hi, Lou. Thanks for having me today. Thanks for coming in. Uh, for two time, uh, I was a paramedic for almost 25 years. I'm now a district chief at the fire department. I'm called a district chief because I cover two towns at once at times. Um, I also work at a fire academy. It's called NIPSTA. It's in the suburbs of Chicago. I work in the fire academy, and I also teach VMO and VMT, which is extrication of uh, cars and vehicles and trucks. Great, thanks. Is other as far as the academy part of it goes, do you concentrate? Do you do more practical stuff? Are you a classroom guy, or where do you? I'm boots on the ground yeah. guy. I'm in the field. You know, I have the new kids. The biggest thing we see is some of the newer kids seem entitled at times. Right. What our job is to try to break them down, to let them know that you don't follow orders, you may not come home. Right. So the biggest thing is getting young people to follow orders. And that if you don't, there's no freelancing, no room right. like right. that in the fire service. So so not to, not to get off the subject that we're going to talk about today, but with that... Um, do you find that some of the younger people coming in, um, if you look back when we started, I mean, we're kind of old school dinosaurs in, in the industry, right? But um, it seems like most everybody had a, had a trade back then and worked with their hands a lot. Do you find the people coming in now are less comfortable working with tools and power tools and ladders and whatnot? It's definitely, you see it. And even in the new kids starting, but the guys at my firehouse, the three to five year guys, they're not in the trades because the economy has changed so much that their wives are working also now and they're going home to watch the kids instead right. of like the old days, we're going to carpenter job, electrician, whatever, not anymore. Now they're hustling home so their wives can get to work and keep the kids out of daycare. Right, there's so, still two jobs in the household, but instead of the guy traditionally having them both, uh, now they split the duties. And, exactly. And yeah, they're shifting. Yeah. So. Awesome. Um, okay, so anyway, let's go uh, get back to how we got here. Is uh, I don't know, probably a couple months ago when the podcast idea was first pitched to me here, uh, I thought, you know, what am I going to talk about or who can I have help me? And so I thought of you. And um, so that when we were talking about that, we we got on the subject of fire behavior and fire travel in buildings and fire ground priorities and you had mentioned a big fire you were at recently and that there may be some good things to talk about that uh, might be of interest right. from that. So why don't you give me a quick rundown and uh, let's talk about that. Yeah, so about at least a month ago it was a five alarm fire, three alarm EMS box. I came in on the box alarm um, it was a six-story condominium unit on a Sunday morning, 8 o'clock. We know from those times of day that on a weekend, it's filled with occupants. Right. When I pulled up, smoke was coming out of the one unit on the east end of the building, fully involved fire of the unit. From later on, we found that in that apartment, there was a guy, he said he woke up, his whole bed was on fire. He ran out the door and left the door open. His bed was on fire. His bed was on fire. Uh, smoke detectors in the unit? Smoke detectors in the unit, no sprinklers. No sprinklers. 
So, so did the, I always, you know, we've all heard it. They woke up to their bed on fire and, you know, whether or not they had smoke detectors. So was the, was the guy's smoke detector going off? Did it operate? He did not say if he heard the smoke detector. The problem with, was after the fire was out during the investigation, we had a partial roof collapse in that unit. Right. Uh, the fire got so hot that when it hit the thousand degrees, total flash over the unit. Yeah. What happened when most of the trucks were set to get up to the sixth floor, we had multiple rescues that came involved. So was so, the sixth floor the top floor of the building? Top floor of the building. Okay. Um, precast floors, but bar joist roof, uh, membrane roof over an old um, paper gravel roof. Yeah which added a lot of problems down the road. So how thick was that roof? It was probably eight inches thick. Yeah. Um, one thing, once once we saw the fire and controlled things, some things that we saw that went wrong, we split our fire ground channels to go trucks on one channel, engine operations on the other. Okay. Which was pretty much a failure for us yeah. because we needed more truck work at that time and command could not follow both radios seeing who needed help. Do you guys train like that with, uh, with the, the trucks on one and the engines on the other or? Never. So Never. that was something new that whoever was in command that it was changed at that time. Yeah. And when I pulled up on the fifth floor right below the fire floor, I had a older grandmother lady totally involved in smoke had hanging over, I had no truck. I was calling for emergency traffic because we couldn't get up there to get her. Yeah. All of a sudden I had a squad company that became available. They made it to her, but didn't have a mask for air to try to bring her down the stairs. They radioed for a truck. So she was on the floor below the fire and still had heavy smoke conditions. Heavy smoke conditions, black smoke hanging over the railing. At that time, I looked up again on the fifth floor. I saw another truck company and that lieutenant looked at me and said, we have it, we can get her down the stairwell. At that point, he had her mask on her. And I looked and made a decision like, you know what, just go. And right. they got her out, she was fine. And uh, put his air mask on her, brought her down the stairwell and got her out to the ambulance. And while we went to the third alarm ambulance box, it was a hot Sunday morning. I was losing more firefighters than residents. Right. So they were getting overheated. They were coming down exhausted. We, I think we sent three firefighters to the hospital by ambulance that were just totally drained from working. So how many ambulances did you have just working uh, rehab? We had seven ambulances at least. On the fifth alarm, I think we had five trucks, 15 engines, four squads. We had plenty of manpower. Right. The problem was Finally, when the trucks could free up to make the rescues, because we were on both sides of the building, cherry-picking people off the balconies, right. that we never got water on the fire. And like I think from your first podcast, get the water on the fire and things start to improve. Yeah, absolutely. We never got water on that fire till it was so involved that it was working its way down the hallways. And we finally got a truck to knock it down a little bit 
and then the guys can make an interior attack. So did the engine companies that were there initially, were they assisting the trucks with the rescue? Is that why you didn't, you they didn't, they were, didn't get water on a fire? Or? No, they, they were making their way up the stairwell, made it to the fire floor, and seemed to have no pressure once they made it to the fire floor and the hand lines. Now, this is, you said uh, no sprinklers, but was there standpipes in the there building? There was standpipes. The uh, oh. problem was is they found after the fire there was a faulty standpipe that instead of five or six turns, you needed 25 turns to open this thing up. Got it. So as soon as the step man opened it for water up there, their hose line charged, he just stopped spinning. Problem was, they were only getting like 50 GPM out of the hand line when they needed some big water up right. there, right. which pushed them back into the stairwell. So those were a few things that started to go wrong. Uh, we finally got more water coming up there. Another company went up, checked the standpipe, got it to spin a little bit better, got water on the fire, and held it in check. Yeah. So it didn't. It was involved only in one apartment up there. Did it ever uh, extend past that? It fire did, the fire did not extend past. Well, it did. It went down to the next unit next to it. <coughs> excuse me, and worked its way out through that apartment. When those people left, they left their door open, so it had an avenue right. for the you know fire to make its way in. And once it hit that, then that whole apartment was totally involved. So we had two apartments rolling. And was that in the, it was this a long building? About how long from one so end to the So we're going probably 120 by 50. Okay. Um, a 60-unit building. Um, we had more fire companies clearing every floor, knocking on doors, primary searches going on. Um, we finally made it down to the one unit where we did have one fatality. Um, she had been in a bedroom that was confined that they really had to work their way through it and found her. But that was the only fatality, luckily, out of that fire. We cleared the whole building. So, uh, yeah, I imagine on a Sunday morning at 8 o'clock, probably most everybody was home and maybe getting ready to leave to go to church or whatever they exactly. were doing. Exactly. So we yeah. know, like, late at night, early in the morning, those occupants are in there. Right. You know, so... We're trying to get everybody out of that building as possible that we could, and we did. Um, actually, the guy, he did get transported to fire unit. As he did wake up with his bed on fire, he did yeah. have some multiple burns on his arms. And they were leaning more, and we had this happen once before, where a computer was on the bed charging. Okay. The computer overheated, started the sheets on fire, boom. Sure. The rest of the things, you know, started rolling. How about that? I never uh, never thought of that, but you know, laptops get hot, and the fan is usually on the bottom, right? And exactly. If you block it off, um, and all it does is overheat. Yeah. So we've had a couple of those fires already, and that was from the laptop on the bed. Wow, that's that's uh, that's interesting. Did uh, did the fire make it up into the cockloft at all, or? So there was no cockloft. What it was, it it just that ceiling was right your apartment. Bar joists, drywall, bar joists, and then all the decking. And some of the biggest problems was the new membrane roofs that they put over the old roofs without tearing them off. Right. We actually had to go up there. We cut the membrane to stick our hands in there, the truck company did, to see if they could feel heat. Yeah. And they did. And what was happening is the fiberboard on the old roof 
started on fire at the east unit and just kept burning all inside the way that hole inside the membrane yeah so we were there got there at eight i think we left at four in the afternoon and they went back again for a rekindle at like nine o'clock at night because we just couldn't get water on that roof without cutting it all up yeah um did you guys open the have to open the roof at all, other than uh, cutting the membrane? Or we didn't only because that unit was a partial collapse, which vented the fire for us, which right. was kind of nice. But we did not have to make any more openings in the roof. Um, one thing: this is the only fire I've been at in 33 years where the building department showed up and said we were out of water that we had to shut it down. Um, I was up at that time in a tower from uh, another suburb just so I could get a look. Yeah. And we were blasting it, ripping that membrane up, trying to get water in. Got the call on the radio to shut down that they were out of water. And in the suburbs, you hardly ever hear that. It wasn't like we're on a well. Right. Um, but they had their own water system in that town. And it depleted the town of so much water that they were worried that the residents would have no water for their facilities. So they were they were more worried about the residents being able to flush their toilets than you guys putting the fire out. Exactly. Yeah, I and imagine there was some interesting conversations. Uh, I had a few <laughs> words that I, I set up in that tower that I've never heard of this shit before. How could you tell us to stop flowing water? Right, at a fire. At a fire. Right, right. So what we did though, we pulled another, it was unincorporated, we pulled another line from some other hydrants that were a neighboring town and took their water. Like, yeah. Water's a big issue nowadays. Like, every village is counting every penny, and right. especially if they're paying for water. No, absolutely. And I think so. everybody by us pretty much takes uh, gets Lake Michigan water, yes. and it comes through their tap on their meter, and uh, right, right. And they're getting built. So some things, you know, I mean, the guys really worked hard. Ventilating and fire behavior, I mean, modern fire behavior, if we wouldn't have had the rescues at the beginning, we had the trucks up ready to blast it, would have knocked it down, but what held us back was rescues that we were on the balconies <coughs> pulling the people off. Right. So So um, this how did this come did this come in, called in as a fire or it came in alarm? As a fire. Fire alarm went off. They did have fire alarms, uh -huh. but no sprinklers. So when the fire alarm came in, first on the scene they got a code four, which gives you, you know, three engines, two trucks, couple ambulances, and battalion chief. So is that a is that like a that's a working fire response? That's or? a working fire response. Okay. Yeah, code four. That would be a working fire. Okay. So from that point, it just kept upgrading, and we needed more trucks. And once you upgrade to the next box, following box, like the five alarm, we had plenty of equipment. It was just we had a bad area where staging was. So okay. Our staging officer sending us what we needed at times was a little behind because everybody wanted a truck on their, you know, side of the building. Right. So, um, how was access? Was there a parking lot all the way around or driveway so all the, the way around? So the problem was is where this unit is, there's six other units the same size around it. Okay. The truck that pulled in the first truck, he was almost pinned between two buildings. They had right where they needed to be to make the knock. But like I say, that truck had to open up and go cherry pick two people off the balcony. Yeah. So once they did make the rescues, they were able to open up their, uh, you know, the big water on it, and that knocked it down, which helped 
the interior guys do the primary searches and make the attack on the fire to right. knock it down. So, awesome. Um, so I guess just to recap, uh, one thing that uh, our listeners will hear me talk about is complacency on a fire ground, and I'm sure you know you see it. And I, I remember when, when I was still on the job, I always tried to stay a little paranoid because I was scared of being complacent. Complacent, and I saw a lot of people being complacent. Do you think? Uh, complacency had anything to do with some of the decisions uh, at the beginning, like, well, well, you know, we'll just split the the radio communications or or anything like that. Or do you think they just it was such a big deal right off the bat that they just got behind and couldn't catch up? I think really they were overwhelmed from the beginning, and when they did show up, that alarm. Just pulling up should have been already elevated, maybe two alarms higher, right. just because of the time of day and the size of the building. So where does the box, you said you came in on a box, where does the box come in after so the code four? After a code four is a box alarm. Okay. And once that goes, that goes to Mavis, right. which, you know, that brings us into all neighboring suburbs, starts sending us equipment. Okay. Then from the box, it escalates in alarms. So okay. Just keeps bringing you more equipment and more equipment. So after the box, that's a second alarm then? Is that how yes. you guys do it? Okay. So, and we needed manpower. And the one thing, like you said, complacency. Um, at the end of the fire, with the tower up there, and this was an old mole. I mean, this thing was blasting out 1,250 gallons a minute out of that nozzle. Roof units, like the tops, were being blown off. So I radioed down. All the guys were out of the building sitting having snacks and whatever down there, I was worried that we're going to blow a piece of metal off the roof and wind up hurting somebody down below. So there was things, you know, did the first engine company, if they opened the standpipe all the way, would they had a better chance? You're like me and you. I'm not playing Monday morning quarterback. They did a nice job getting in there, trying to make it happen for them. Um, you know, it could have been a lot more fatalities in that building. Absolutely. It could have extended a lot farther. Uh, I think probably you were somewhat fortunate that this wasn't on the second floor because then you would have, you know, probably would have had a lot of trouble. So um, caught a little bit of luck. We did. Uh, worked hard. I, I think uh, as many fires as you go to, um, if you don't learn something from every fire you go to, you're missing out. And that's so, the one thing, too, with, like, working at – Nipsta, the fire academy, with guys from Chicago, all the suburbs, even at my time, when I go there and we're training or teaching, I learn something new, it seems like every day. That Absolutely. How could I be around this amount of time and never saw that? Yeah. You know, or this tactic you talk about, or, you know, we still are, you got to put stuff away at times and have that in your heart that, you know what, I'm kicking this thing's ass and I'm getting in there. Right. And... That's what the true fireman, after you're there a while, I mean, we're running in when people are running out. Exactly. So. And you know what? Um, we have to get it done. There's no yeah. nobody coming in behind us, right? No backing up. So you just do what it takes to get it done. Um, well, that's awesome. It sounds like, you know, obviously there was some struggles there, but, you know, you guys did a good job. And, um, you know, unfortunately one fatality, but in the scope of things, it could have been much worse. It could have been much worse. It could have been catastrophic. Absolutely. I mean, we could have lost everybody on that top floor. Absolutely. So, So, uh, you came to the other, this other town, and uh, 
are you familiar with that response district or, or do you guys train with uh, with the towns around you as far as uh, uh, whether it's pre-planning some buildings like this you know this kind of looks sounds like a target hazard or do you guys do you know I'll show you mine you show me yours type thing or we do a lot of that and one of the big things where we learn stuff is three times a year we have a Mavis drill at Nipsta which brings in about I think they had 102 rigs that came three weeks time and you do three drills that day so we've had mass casually trained wrecks we've had all kinds of modern fire behavior each thing where we drill on we're training with other towns so if i'm with evanston you know how are these guys what are they pulling off the back a skid load with whatever right you know are they pulling pre-connects are they taking hotel packs what is their tactics at this fire that we're training on so at the end of the evolutions we all sit around and critique a little bit to say, hey, you know what? Why did you, how did you guys, why, why do you do this? You walk away with like, you know what, that makes sense. Right. So there's times you're learning things. So. Is there, um, obviously you guys collaborate on the, on the training, uh, but like this instance where, you know, or they pull a skid load or they pre-connect, whatever. Do you guys then try and uh, collaborate or become consistent across, well, hey, this town is doing it this way seems like a pretty good idea maybe we should do it that way as well uh, do you, I mean I'm sure you talk about it but does it actually happen sometimes it does and you know being in this one town could be really aggressive firefighters the next town over not so much right you know they're more EMS related right so where I work for years we're a real aggressive department I mean when I was young we were at a house fire and the company that got there first, the guy was like, do you want to take this hand line? Hell yeah, get yeah. out of my way. Right. You know, so we went in when they were the first unit on the scene. Like, that stuff shouldn't happen, you know. Like, right. you should be the guy that wants to knock that thing down, you know. And when we walk out, you know, you, you have a feeling of pride that, you know, you might have saved someone. You saved some property. Right. And we, we're doing the job that we're getting paid for because, as you know, we don't get as many fires is what we used to. No, so. absolutely. So it's it's much more difficult to stay proficient. It definitely is. So we actually, at our department, became proactive in training where in the old days it'd be like, okay, we're pulling this pre-connect every duty day three times. All of a sudden that went away because EMS training, this and that. Well, we're back to that. Training how to put your mask on efficient, how to pull a pre-connect, you know, where we're going, who's making bends, Who's controlling that corner on the hose line? Right. You know, you know? Um, that's interesting that, uh, you know, the old back to basics because probably, I don't know, maybe about 15 years ago or so, that was one of the things out there is back to basics, back to yeah. basics. And uh, I think that would be an excellent subject for us to talk about right. uh, going forward in the future <laughs> at another on another episode. Yeah, because even at the Academy, I push fundamentals. I look at it like sports. Like, if you learn your play, your block, your guy, if you relate that back to the fire service and say, you know what, it's fundamentals. So you have muscle memory that I'm grabbing that hose line the same way each time and I'm going in, my mask is on, my tank's ready, my gloves are yeah. set. And if the kids learn that, hopefully down the road, I always tell them, like, you're going to be in a situation. 
And hopefully in the back of your mind, like I'm your dad, you're going to be like, holy shit, Mitch told me this is bad. <laughs> yeah, right. This is bad. Right. And that's going to hit you because it's, it's drained into you just yeah. like our dads did. And, and like you're in a bad situation. You either need to make it right or start to back out, you know, and that's, yeah. that's what I try to teach. Oh, that's awesome. Uh, so we're going to close this episode out here. Uh, again, my guest uh, today was my good friend, Mike Mitchell. And uh, uh, I, I had a, a real enjoyable time here, Mike. Uh, this lasted a little longer than uh, we had planned on. But, you know, when you sit around talking with friends about fire stuff, it, it generally goes that way. So, uh, again, Lou Vaselli, And this is uh, Put the Wet Stuff on the Red Stuff podcast that you've been listening to. If you want more information, you can reach out to me by email at lou, L-O-U, at darley, D-A-R-L-E-Y dot com. Uh, Thank you again for listening, and uh, I hope to uh, touch base with you down the road. Again, if you also, if you have some ideas for a podcast or you want to have a conversation, uh, just like Mike and I did today, please reach out. Uh, This podcast is nothing without your input. So until next time, be safe, look out for each other. Bye.